Today's scripture is from James chapter 5, verse 7-12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, with the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, so let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again, New Hope. Thanks for praying for us, Jimmy, and thank you, Bethany, for reading God's word to us. We are coming to the end of the letter of James. Really, a better way to say this is that James is coming to the end of his letter, and so are we. We've been unpacking this letter verse by verse, and God willing, we're going to wrap it up in just two more weeks after today. Last week, if you happen to have been here, you may remember that we looked at the beginning of James chapter 5, where James speaks directly to wealthy people, to powerful, privileged people who were robbing and exploiting and otherwise oppressing Christians. Now, in the section we're going to look at today, he's not talking to those rich landowners. Instead, he looks back at his beloved brothers and sisters who are experiencing that pain of oppression, and he talks to them. As a wise, loving pastor, he tells his brothers and sisters how to respond to the injustices that they're suffering, to the pain that they're experiencing. If you've been treated unfairly, you've been taken advantage of, hurt, these words are for you. But even if you don't feel like you're facing injustice right now, maybe you're in a season that's not marked by suffering, but by peace, this passage still has something to teach all of us. It has something to teach all of us about how to respond to pain and disappointment and hardships of all sorts. And if you're not in a season of hardship, then it prepares you for when that season will come, and it will come. And it helps you to know how to pray for your brothers and sisters who right now are experiencing that pain. So, how do we respond to suffering in a broken, sin-cursed world? Well, if we had to sum up what James has to say here in one word, that one word would be patience. That's how we respond to suffering, to injustice in this broken, sin-cursed world. It's patience. Now, it's actually not just one word because the word that the New Testament, the words that the New Testament usually translate as patient or patience, um, they vary. There's actually two words that show up in this passage. One of them, I'm going to just give you the word, and I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I'll just give them to you. The one Greek word is Macrothomeo. And that's the word that usually shows up in the New Testament as 
patience. But then there's this other word that shows up here. It's hupomeno. And hupomeno sometimes is translated as patience as well. But at other times it's translated as endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. So you see the patience that James is talking about here isn't just the patience that calmly waits. It's a kind of patience that endures, that perseveres, that stays steadfast in the midst of suffering. So how do we do this? How do we respond to injustice and suffering with patience? James gives us some examples. He says, respond to suffering like a farmer, like a prophet, and like Job. Like a farmer, like a prophet, and like Job. Those are the three examples he gives us. So let's look at the first one. He says, respond like a farmer. <laughs> look at verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So he starts by saying, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. And he gives us an example of how a farmer waits for rain and then later waits for his crops to come in. He's saying, wait patiently. And, and he's not just saying, wait for the pain to stop because it'll get better. He's not just saying, Things will turn around soon. He's not saying, wait until election day. Things will get better then. No, his hope is not in just some arbitrary future reality. No, he says, wait for the coming of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, who died for his people, and he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he will come back. See, this is a distinctly Christian way to respond to suffering. Only the gospel enables us to respond to suffering in this way because the gospel tells us that the one Son of God who died for us in our place and rose from the dead is coming back. He won't just end your pain, but all pain for all his people. He will wipe away every tear. He will hand out justice once and for all. And everything will be as it ought to be. So, wait, James says. Remember back in verse 5 of the same chapter, James said, the cries of the suffering and the oppressed have, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts sees the mistreatment, the affliction of his people. And he's coming to help. In fact, he identifies himself as the Lord of hosts, which means he's the Lord of cosmic angelic armies. And he's coming to vindicate his people and bring final peace. So, wait for him. In fact, wait like a farmer. He uses this familiar imagery, at least it would be, for, it's maybe not familiar to us, but it would have been familiar to his original readers. Many of them would have been very accustomed to farming. Remember back in the same chapter earlier, he talked about how the, the, the rich landowners, many rich landowners, were exploiting their Christian laborers who were working out in their fields, doing the hard work, the heavy lifting of farming 
all day long, these rich landowners were depriving them of the pay that they deserved. Many of the people to whom James is writing would have been familiar with long, hard days of work on a farm. And these farmers, they had to wait, in particular, for the rainy seasons. This is a dry land. And James is writing into the context of it's, a, it's an arid climate. And, and so the, when the rainy seasons came, that's when there was opportunity to plant. And these two rainy seasons, one of them came in the autumn, one of them came in the spring. The farmer had to wait for those expected rains. And that's when the planting and the harvesting had to happen according to schedule. In the meantime, what did the farmer have to do? Well, the farmer had to work and carry out the responsibilities that God had given him. You see, waiting like a farmer, it means waiting with hope and hard work. It means waiting with hope, expectation, but also hard work. For the farmer, waiting meant planting and weeding and fertilizing with hope in a power and in an outcome that's outside of him. Beyond his control. He, could, he had to do what he could do, but he could not generate crops. And still he's not passive, he's active. But, but he can't make anything happen. In fact, he can't get ahead of himself. He must not plant or harvest out of season. Instead, he must wait. And so God is speaking to suffering believers here, and he's saying, like that farmer, don't rush to make things happen on your own timeline. Don't seek to, to hasten the end of your suffering by illegitimate means. He's saying, don't seek justice on your own terms, disregarding God. Rather, wait for God's timeline. He's also saying, don't misplace your hope. Don't think that somehow, if I could just do this one thing, or this, if this, my circumstance were to change in this area, all my pain, all of my hardship would go away. He's saying, no, there's always going to be hardship. There's always going to be injustice until Jesus returns. And so set your hope on that secure future reality. A farmer can't make things happen. He can't say, rain now, right now. He also can't say, you know what, I'm not going to wait for the rain. I'm just going to get to work. I can't wait till spring. I'm planting now. But that's how we might think in the midst of pain. Sometimes in the midst of pain, we might say, I, I know what has to happen here. God's not doing it, so I need to somehow make it happen. And when we try to take matters into our own hands like that, with, without patient trust, we're saying to God that he's fallen behind. He's, he's too slow. His timeline is unacceptable. My timeline is wiser. My patience breaks down, turns into frustration. Our God knows it's hard to wait. <laughs> he knows he's asking us to do something here that's very difficult for us. But he reminds us in places like 2 Peter chapter 3, do not overlook this one fact. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. Our God operates on a different timeline. He operates outside of the timeline that we are constrained by. What seems to us like an insufferably long wait from God's perspective is not that at all. Then he goes on to say in, first, in 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. You see, the long wait notwithstanding, this future reality is unavoidable. It will happen it has been written, God has determined it, and he has set a day when he will return to make all things new and to judge with righteous judgment. And then later on in that same chapter of Second Peter, he writes, but according to his promise, we are waiting. We're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We long, every one of us, whether we know it or not, longs to live in a place where righteousness dwells. We long to be righteous, and we long to live in a place that's governed, controlled by righteousness. But we can't make that happen on our own timeline. We don't have the, the wherewithal to affect that reality. That is to create that reality is what I mean. But according to God's promise, we wait for it. We wait for it. James said earlier in his letter that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Under serious trials, severe pain, and if, I, if I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes for me, it's even just a, under a little bit of pain, I get really impatient. And what comes out of my heart is anger. And I might call it righteous anger. I got a reason to be angry. But God would say otherwise. And he tells me and he tells you here, your impatience won't accomplish the righteousness of God. Instead, wait for him. Wait for him. And in the meantime, do the work he's given you. Work faithfully as you trust the Lord's purposes to unfold. You see, what God is calling us here in waiting is not passive, again. It's waiting with hope and hard work. As I thought about this, I was reminded of a couple of examples of ministries that organizations that we as a church get to partner with. Um, one of them is called Justice Ventures International, JVI. And JVI is an organization that fights against human trafficking in Southeast Asia. They partner with local institutions to break up trafficking rings, to put traffickers behind bars, to free trafficking victims, survivors, and help them build a new life for themselves. They, their, their vision statement explains that their goal is to bring justice 
and restoration to those who have been trafficked. But the folks at Justice Ventures International know, they know that ultimate justice and ultimate restoration will only come when Jesus returns. So what they're doing in Jesus' name and with hope in Christ's return is they're just doing the work that he's called them to do. Pushing back against the evil. Rescuing a handful of women here. A handful of children there. You might look and say, well, they're, they're, basically, they're barely making a dent in the global human trafficking problem. But no, they're waiting with hope and with hard work. Another organization we get to partner with as a church is called Expect Hope. Expect Hope, uh, Expect hope runs a, a home in the Bronx, not far from here, about 20, 25 minutes from here. A home for expectant mothers and their, and, and their newborn children. So what Expect Hope does is takes in single women who are pregnant, helps them go through the delivery process. Once their children are born, they live in that home for two years, raising their children for the first two years of their life. In that home, they receive, mothers do receive training and parenting. They receive job coaching. They're provided with all the diapers and all of the material things they need to raise their kids. They're mentored. Houseworkers sit down with them and study the Bible, teach them the gospel, disciple them, lead them to Christ. These are young women who don't seem to have many alternatives. They are at very high risk for terminating their pregnancies. Expect hope. Welcomes them. Both of these organizations are fighting injustice. And they're doing awesome work. But, but really, they're just working in their little corner of the field. In the big picture, how much of a change are they really making? Expect Hope houses a handful of women and children. The big picture, it may be small. Maybe even unremarkable, but not to the Lord. What they're doing is motivated by their patient waiting for the Lord. They're motivated to keep going because they're patiently trusting in the Lord. You see, they have the expectation of complete justice one day when he returns to make things right. And so they patiently wait for that return while they keep laboring, pushing, working for justice in the here and now. Rescuing people from physical bondage in some cases. And giving them the gospel of Christ that can free them from spiritual bondage. That's part of what it means when James tells us to wait and respond to suffering like a, like a farmer. But he also tells us in the second part that we should respond to suffering like a prophet. Like a prophet. And here's what he means. Look at verse 10 of James chapter 5. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, 
take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's saying, look at the prophets. They're a very good example of suffering. Many prophets suffered severely. Maybe you can think of some of those names. Prophets in the Old Testament like Jeremiah and Hosea, Daniel, Isaiah, Elijah. Fast forward to the New Testament, we see a man like John the Baptist suffering severely. You know what these men all had in common? Besides the fact that they were all prophets and they all suffered? In the end, they remained focused on their mission and they faithfully spoke on behalf of the Lord. They never stopped preaching. They never stopped speaking the words that God had given them to speak. In many cases, they spoke against injustice, in fact. They denounced injustice, even when it was being perpetrated by rulers, powerful kings. They paid a price for that. Some of them paid with their lives for speaking out against the injustice that they saw. More than that, they also called people over and over and over again to turn away from sin and believe in the Lord. They stayed focused. They carried out their mission even while they suffered. This reminded me, actually, as I was studying this, reminded me of examples from American history of people who were not prophets in the technical sense, but people who, in the name of Jesus, have spoken out against injustice in our land. It reminded me of the abolitionists, Christian abolitionists in the 18th and 19th century who fought hard against the practice of chattel slavery. And it wasn't just the ones that are called abolitionists that fought. Slaves themselves, Christian slaves themselves, worked and fought hard to get their own freedom, even while they trusted in the Lord, who would one day return to give them ultimate freedom. I want to read to you a letter, a part of a letter. It was written back in 1774. It says here, this is a petition of a great number of black slaves to Thomas Gage. Thomas Gage was a legis, uh, a, 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 was, a, was in legislative office in Massachusetts at the time. These slaves were writing to him, asking him for their freedom. If you ever have a chance to read this and look it up online, I, I encourage you to. I, I wanted to show it. We're having technical difficulties, so I can't show it to you. But here's what these slaves wrote. We were unjustly dragged by the cruel hand of power from our dearest friends and some of us were stolen from the bosoms of our tender parents, and we were brought hither to be made slaves for life in a Christian land. Thus are we deprived of everything that hath a tendency to make life even tolerable. The endearing ties of a husband and wife we are strangers to, for we are no longer man and wife when our masters or mistresses thinks proper. Pointing to the fact that they couldn't even live as husband and wives if a master or mistress decided to split up that couple. Our children are also taken from us by force and sent many miles from us where we seldom or ever see them again. They're to be made slaves. 
Thus our lives are embittered to us on these accounts. How can a slave perform the duties of a husband to a wife or a parent to his child? How can a husband leave master and work and cleave to his wife? How can the wives submit themselves to their husbands in all things? How can the child obey their parents in all things? You see, they're quoting Scripture here. They're saying, how can we walk out obedience to these commands in our state as slaves? How can the master be said to bear my burden when he bears me down with the heavy chains of slavery and oppression against my will? We, therefore, beg Your Excellency, will you give this its due weight and consideration that you will accordingly cause an act of the legislative to be passed that we may obtain our natural right, our freedoms, and our children be set at liberty? I believe this is part of what it looks like to respond to suffering like a prophet to wait like a prophet. They're speaking the very words of God to those who are doing them harm, afflicting them, mistreating them, robbing them of their dignity and of their freedom. Yeah. They're waiting on God's timeline, all right. But they're also crying out, not only to God, but to those in power speaking the very words of their God. It's what it looks like in part to respond to suffering like a prophet. In James 5, verses 8 and 9, James says, You also be patient like the prophets were. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says this, listen, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, he says it again, the judge is standing at the door. You see, like the prophets, we are called to establish our hearts. That is, we must stand firm. That's what it means to establish our hearts, to stand strong, resolute in our dedication to carry out the mission that God has given us. To carry out the life, to live the life that God has called us to. That is, we must establish our hearts to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To live as a community that operates under a different set of values and ethics. To to live as a community that, that lives according to the royal law of our King, Jesus. And to preach the gospel of His kingdom. And to do all that while we wait, patient and resolute. You see, waiting like a prophet means patient persistence. Again, they continued speaking the words of the Lord. They called people to repentance and faith in God. That's what we're called to do. In the name of Jesus, believing that there is power in that gospel, that we're called to preach. Verse 9 is very interesting. He says, don't grumble against each other. Well, why do you think he says this? I believe one of the reasons he's saying this is because when you are in seasons of pain and suffering, you're being treated badly 
it's very easy to start turning on the people around you. Your own brothers and sisters complaining against one another. It seems that that's what these first century Christians may have been doing. Maybe they disagreed with the ways that their brothers or sisters were facing suffering. Maybe they felt that part of the reason they were suffering was the fault of their brother here or their sister there. In any case, the fact that they were being afflicted from outside was causing them to fight inside this community of Christians. It's reminiscent, this word grumbling and this whole scenario is reminiscent of what happened in the book of Exodus when God called his people out of Egypt and as they wandered in the, in the desert for decades, what did they often do? They grumbled against their leaders, against each other, and against God. They were suffering. They were experiencing serious trials. And yet rather than waiting patiently upon the Lord, they began to, to use the Apostle Paul's words, to devour each other. So, James is saying, rather than complain against one another, keep speaking the words of the Lord because the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. In other words, the Lord, once again, the Lord will soon make things right. And, and, and furthermore, we want to be found serving him faithfully when he returns. And we want to be found living at peace with each other when he returns. Responding to suffering like a prophet is hard work. It requires what Eugene Peterson called long obedience in the same direction. Faithful, focused, established, resolute hearts that are committed to obeying God for the long haul. So, James says, wait like a farmer, wait like a prophet, and lastly, he says, do it like Job. Wait like Job. Respond to suffering like Job did. Look at verses 10 and 11 of James chapter 5. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James remained, I mean Job, I should say, remained steadfast. That is, he stood firm in his faith, even while he suffered unspeakable pain and disappointment and loss. He wasn't just being oppressed by people. He was being oppressed by the very enemy of our souls, and God allowed it. He was steadfast. But he wasn't stoic. He didn't pretend like everything's all right. Job, you never catch him. If you ever read the book of Job, you'll never catch him once just saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. I'm good. I'm good. It'll all be okay. I'm just trusting in God, trusting in the Lord, doing better than I deserve. I'll be fine. You don't hear that coming from his mouth. What you see is that Job lamented his state, and he doubted, and he complained, and he cried out to God. And, and that's the point, though, that in all of his doubting, in all of his complaining, in all of his lament, he never stopped speaking to God. He never stops praying. He never cut himself off from God. 
He refused to forsake the Lord, even when he was given the advice to just curse God and die. He would not curse God. Instead, he was able to say, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he continued to trust and hope in Yahweh. You see, patience, this kind of steadfastness, it doesn't mean we just paint a smile on our face and sing, the sun will come out tomorrow. No. This kind of patience, this kind of steadfastness, it can also be accompanied by crying out to the Lord and asking for Him to make the pain stop. Asking for Him to relieve you of the suffering, to remove the affliction and the one who is causing that affliction. You see, this kind of patience and steadfastness doesn't mean we don't ask God to make it all stop. In fact, in the very next section of chapter 5, James instructs Christians to pray for healing. The same goes when we're struggling under injustice. It doesn't mean that we don't cry out for it to stop. When we see our brothers and sisters suffering under injustice, Yes, we must cry out to God asking for it to stop. But even at the same time that we do that, we need to trust and wait for him. The reason I mention that is because sometimes I think we can look at this with kind of a, kind of a false, through a false dichotomy. Like I, I just read recently a quote that said, don't ask for the suffering to go away. Ask God to show you what he's teaching you in the suffering. And I read that. I said, that sounds nice. But, but why can't I do both? Why can't I ask God to take the suffering away and ask him what he's teaching me and trust him? I think God hates false dichotomies. I certainly do. No. In the end, what is more important is that we trust the Lord. Absolutely. But that doesn't discount the fact that we can come to him like Job did. And say, Lord, what are you doing? Will you please rescue? I'm, I'm, I'm folding under the pressure. W- would you either please give me strength to bear up or relieve the pressure? Job questioned. He even complained against the Lord. But again, he never stops talking to God. And I think that the application for us here is that in the midst of suffering, we must take it to the Lord. If it's our suffering, Take it to the Lord. If it's the suffering of our brothers and sisters, take it to the Lord. Don't pretend like you're steadfast. No. Bring your lack of steadfastness to the Lord. Confess it to Him and ask Him for steadfastness. Don't pretend like you're patient and hopeful. Bring your impatience and your hopelessness to the Lord. Lay it out before Him. Confess it. He sees it already. And in the very praying, in the laying out your heart before God, it's so often the case that it's right there that you will start to experience the comfort, the patience that God desires to see in you. John Newton once wrote, everything is necessary that God sends 
Nothing can be necessary if God withholds it. I affirm that. I believe that. And many of you do too. Everything that we need, God sends us. Nothing can be necessary if he is withholding it from us. We believe that. But, but, but be honest, in the midst of suffering and pain, isn't it hard to believe that? Those words don't just roll off your lips. What do we do when those words don't come so easy? We bring that to the Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm doubting that you're really giving me everything that's necessary. I'm doubting that you it feels to me like you're withholding things from me that are necessary. But I know you, Lord. I know you. I've seen your faithfulness. Show me. Comfort me. Help me to see. That's the way that we never stop trusting. Keep talking to him. Keep listening. Keep reading his word. That's what it looks like to stand firm like Job did, to endure and persevere like Job did. And through his story, like the stories of many others in the Scriptures, we see that the end that God had in mind was a compassionate one, a merciful one. Job, in the end of his story, he meets with God's compassion and mercy. All of those prophets that suffered met with God's compassion and mercy and if we are God's people then we will on the other end of our suffering experience more of his compassion more of his suffering and it's often in the midst of the suffering that we begin to get more and more of a taste of just how compassionate and merciful he is God has a purpose there's no doubt it sounds like a cliche but it's absolutely true And his purpose in our suffering is often beyond our ability to fathom. We can't see it. We can't understand it. And he's not always going to show us why he's doing it. But he does tell us this. Trust me. Believe in me. If I can be trusted to return one day and make all things new, then you can trust me with your present affliction. The wisest response to suffering is to steadfastly trust our God. Even while we bring all our questions and doubts and pleas right to his throne. Our culture really doesn't equip us to face suffering with patience, does it? We don't learn that. We don't just absorb that from the culture around us. I listened to a message on this very passage from Dr. Tim Keller recently, and he he quoted a physician by the name of Dr. Paul Brand. I don't know who Dr. Paul Brand is, but apparently he was a physician who worked in the U.S. for half his life and worked in Southeast Asia for half his life. And he was comparing kind of what it looks like to treat patients in the developing world where he was working, the context where he was working, and here in the U.S. Here's what Dr. Brand said. He said, people in modern societies live at a greater comfort level, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and are far more traumatized by it. What do you make of that quote? Do you think that's true? We do experience greater comfort levels than many in many parts of the world. Is it possible that also, along with those comforts, 
we've become ill-equipped to handle suffering. We don't know how to respond to it. We need the Scripture's instruction here to show us how to face pain and disappointment in a way that's, that's consistent with faith in Jesus Christ. More than that, we need the Spirit of God Himself to fill and empower us to, to face trials wisely. And this doesn't happen overnight, does it? What James is encouraging us here is going to be towards is, 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 is going to be a process. We learn slowly to respond well to suffering. As we keep talking to our God, keep reading His Word, keep remembering His promises and remembering His past faithfulness. Knowing that the suffering that Christians face is always temporary. But the peace we're promised is eternal. Injustice will not have the final word. Isaiah 42.4 says, He, that is the Messiah, will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Here's why we can entrust ourselves to him. Here's why we can establish our hearts and wait for him. The examples James gives us are great ones. But the fact is, we need more than examples. These examples aren't even perfect ones. Job didn't face suffering perfectly. Neither did the prophets. Elijah folded under pressure. He wanted to die. We too have failed to face suffering well. We haven't been perfect, not by a long shot. That's why we need more than an example. In fact, not only have we failed to respond well to suffering, we have caused suffering. You and I, we've lived unjustly. We've hurt others, exploited and manipulated others. We need more than examples. We need a Savior. We need a Savior who faced ultimate suffering and injustice for us so that we could be promised eternal blessedness. This is who Jesus Christ is. The Son of God who endured the cross. He was steadfast. He was patient and persevered under pain and affliction. He established his heart. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us that he set his face towards Jerusalem to go there and die for his people. And, and the word there, he set his face, the same word, he established himself and marched to Jerusalem to die. Steadfastly, he endured it all. For us to pay for our injustices and our impatience. James tells us again and again and again the judge is at the door, the coming of the Lord is, is at hand. And, and he's saying this primarily to comfort believers in Jesus Christ. But, but another way that we need to understand this is that it comes as an urgent warning to those who do not know Jesus Christ. You are guilty of injustice. Guilty of impatience. An assortment of other transgressions. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we continue to do that. 
you and I need a Savior who's willing to suffer punishment for us. That's who Jesus is. He was willing to die for you to face affliction that no man could ever take. And then he rose from the dead. And he reigns even now. And one day he will return. If he did this for you, can't you trust him in your present pain? Can't we entrust to him the lives of our brothers and sisters who are suffering? Hasn't he proven himself to be trustworthy? Back in the very beginning of this letter, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let's come before God together. Let's ask him to work that kind of patience, that kind of steadfastness in us. Our Father, we stand in need. We lack the patience that you require of us. But we thank you that you are patient with us. Lord, continue to work in our hearts to make us people who are able to face affliction with our hope resolutely anchored in you. Lord Jesus, come back. Do what only you can do. Make all things right. We look forward to seeing justice that you hand out, but Lord, we ask that even now, even now, you would bring people into your kingdom, rescue them from the judgment to come, give them faith in you. Do this, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.